Hi, welcome to Cycling Talk Podcast with me, Georgia Mahoney. Today I'm joined by former pro and now presenter and commentator for Eurosport GCN, Dan Lloyd. Thank you so much to Dan for being on the podcast. I know that he's always very busy, so I'm so grateful that Dan was able to be on the podcast just before the start of the Tour de France. Thank you for joining me today, Dan. It's my pleasure, yeah. Thanks for having me on, Georgia. What's your first memory of being on a bike? Um, It was when I was three, which was when my stabilisers were taken off. And at the time, I was living in Sutton, South London somewhere. And we had quite a nice back garden, not particularly wide, but quite long, with a start ramp, as I'll call it, basically a path down to the garden. And I remember my dad took my stabilisers off and just let me go from the top of this ramp. Um, And as you'll remember, you're quite nervous when you first ride a bike without Mm stabilisers. But because I had the speed straight away and thankfully didn't wobble off, I got all the way to the bottom of the garden. I remember I, I left the house when I was four, but I've got a, quite a clear recollection of a of a vegetable fruit garden that they had towards the bottom, which was after the grass and back onto the concrete again. And I made it most of the way around the vegetable garden. But then when I started to go uphill, that was the end of that. But I didn't crash. That was the main thing. <laughs> Do you remember the first bike that you were really excited about? Yes. Well, I remember being excited. I don't remember getting a rally burner BMX, I think I had. I remember being excited to have it, but not actually the point at which I got it. And then when I was about nine, uh, for some reason, I was determined to get a road bike. It was a, it was a point at which mountain bikes were starting to become quite fashionable. And, and we lived down a reasonably long gravel track. So my dad was trying to persuade me that we should have, that I should have a, ro- a, a mountain bike and not a road bike. But I, I don't know why, because I didn't have any, my family weren't into road cycling or, or cycling even in general, really. And I hadn't watched much at that age, but I just did. I just desperately wanted this road bike, so he ended up getting me a five-speed rally racer, um, which I loved and which I took great care of. I was going to say for a long time. You know, you know what it's like when you're quite young. It, it felt like a long time. It was probably about four weeks before I, four weeks where I used to walk it up the gravel track to save the tires and to keep it all nice, and then that started to get quite boring. So in the end, I rode up the gravel track. Uh, and then my mates did have mountain bikes and were doing skids and wheelies. And um, I started doing skids. And it turns out the road bikes are brilliant for skids because there's less grip so you can go on forever, which I did until one day I did a skid. And I've done so many of them that it it, it completely rubbed all the rubber away. And yeah. it just, you could see the carcass underneath. I, I remember going back crying, thinking I'm going to get a complete rollicking from my dad for this. <laughs> Tell me about your first race. My first race was um, at a place called Matcham's Park, which is a couple of miles away from, from where I am now at home. So not far away from where I grew up in a place called Bransgore. Um, and it was a mountain bike race. I was 13. They didn't have an under-14s category at times. So I was in under-16s. And I'd got a mountain bike the previous Christmas, so I'd probably have it a few months. Um, and I did really badly. I think I came 47th out of about 65 riders. And I didn't really enjoy it that much. I've got a distinct memory of it was two laps and coming through the start finish area. And it was quite a big event in the mountain bikes at the time, even the local ones. And they had like burger vans. I just remember feeling so tired and exhausted and the smell of the burgers and the hot dogs made me feel sick. But although I found it hard and I didn't do all that well, not long after I got back, I was 
straight into the magazines again where they used to have calendars of what races were coming up looking for where the next one was uh, so yeah that was my first race well it's a pretty big field for your first race I think my first race only had probably less than 10 people in it so it must have been a pretty big step for you yeah I don't think you don't know what to expect from your first race do you you started to sort of enjoy cycling on your own or with other people just as a leisure activity and then um yeah I don't I don't remember what I felt like on the start line I was probably nervous I always used to get nervous for races but um but yeah I got addicted that's for sure <laughs> did you join a local club not for a little while I didn't know I because I started as a mountain biker um you did it more on your own to a degree I did eventually join a, a club called the New Forest Off-Road Cyclist, which was quite new at the time. But my first road club was Bournemouth Arrow CC, and that only really came about because British Cycling used to have a handbook um, with all of the races in, and it also used to have a, a big list of coaches at the back, and it was a point in my life where I wanted to get a bit more serious about it and learn more, and it's kind of before the days of the internet, really. So it's, apart from books, it was quite difficult to find much information and, and some of the stuff you had in magazines uh so in the back of that book was a, a man named alan mccray so I, I gave him a call asked him if he'd coach me which he did and he encouraged me to join bournemouth Aaron, which i did how old were you when you joined the club uh probably about 17 i think mm. i didn't really race on the road until i was about that age yeah first or maybe second year junior i was when i started racing on the road so it would have been been about then who did you enjoy riding with growing up? Um, I had my mates that were into mountain biking when I was young. And then after, I'd, after Alan started coaching me, encouraged me to go out with um, a guy called Roland Tilly. He was a bit of a local legend, really. He'd been, he'd been a domestic pro doing the crit series and that sort of thing back in the day. Um, and there were a couple of others that used to go out with him on Sundays. So I got a bit of a battering, but I really enjoyed riding with. I always enjoyed riding with people that were better than me just because I found that I got better a lot quicker that way than just trying to do it on my own. Which disciplines did you ride? Was it just mountain bike and then did you move on to road? Yes, mountain biking. I used to do a bit of cyclocross, but not not massively seriously. A lot of that I did on a mountain bike. Um, I, did have, I think I had a cross bike for one season, first year senior. Um, and then, yeah, tra- I combined mountain biking with road racing for a few years. So I guess from that second year junior where I did a bit of road racing mainly as training for the mountain bike events um I still combined it for another year or two yeah I did it I did a year in the experts level at mountain biking which was first year senior and then one year in the elite category and then and then at that point I decided that the the money was kind of going out of mountain biking at the time you had to be really a really top rider in order to, to earn a salary and get a career out of it so I decided at that point that I might have I might stand more of a chance of making a career from road racing as opposed to mountain biking. So I went full time with that when I was twenty, I guess. How did you manage your education around your training and racing? I hmm, good question. I was quite I was helped by the school when I was doing A levels in that they used to have a Wednesday afternoon sports session for everybody. And I requested to be able to do to go home and do a longer ride that day. So I think my mum used to pick me up from school at about half one-ish, which gave me a few hours to, to ride in the afternoon. So, um, I mean, beyond that, I probably wasn't riding a huge amount, I wouldn't say. I 
you know, probably a little bit every day, but not anything longer than an hour at a time, which was reasonably easy to squeeze in, in and around the schoolwork. But then by the time I finished with A-levels, I decided to take a year out. I'd been accepted to do sports science at Bath University, but um, I just wanted to concentrate on cycling for a bit just to see how I could get on. I was also a bit sick with education by that point. I just wanted a break before I, before I started again. So I'm on my 20th year out, effectively, so I never went to uni. <laughs> Did you just do cycling or did you do other sports? I did football quite a lot at school, cross-country running. I was in a football club in my local village as well. Um, I used to do all sorts of different sports at school, but I think cycling was the first thing that I really took seriously. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking back the other day, my son's doing cross-country and longer distance running at school at primary. Um, But even when I was in, in senior school, I never really ran between doing PE at school I don't think I think there was one time I was selected for a divisional county championships or something and at that point I did do a bit of running in the local field but I never really did anything in between but yeah I got I got the cycling bug and and quickly started to not just ride really I quickly started to train I think that's what I always enjoyed about cycling and something I only really realized when I finished and I don't really ride much anymore and part of the reason for that is that I liked the process of it and I liked training and getting better and having goals and ticking the days off as I went by. And from a very young age, I was like that. Um, Whereas now I I kind of did what I wanted to do. And um, I have had sort of sporadic periods since I've finished racing full time where I've been getting back into it. But anytime I do get back into it, I've quickly sucked back into numbers and performance and what I can do. And it's normally a couple of months into that. I think, well, what am I doing? I don't need to do this again. What was your first national race like? Actually, this is the, one of the questions that I couldn't think of the answer to. Um, I did the Junior Tour of Wales. I think that the Junior Tour of Wales was my first ever road race, and I think that was probably part of a national series at the time. I might be wrong on that, but it was, you know, it was certainly the UK's best riders used to go to it, still do, and there was an international field as well. Uh, yeah, that was an experience. I think I um, I was driving by that point, so I drove up to Wales on my own. And I'd found a bed and breakfast. I landed on my feet because I think the the mother there felt sorry for me. So she was washing my clothes in the evening and giving me meals that in the evening that um, wasn't part of the deal when I booked it. Um, and it was five stages in three days, I seem to remember. like An opening, prologue, then a road, then a crit the next morning, then a road stage, and then a road stage on the final Sunday. Um, yeah, it was quite challenging because I, I didn't know anything about road racing. and um I didn't have any sort of support really so I remember I had to park my car at the top of the prologue course so that I could then ride down do the race get in my car and go to the next stage um but I really enjoyed it I I did all right actually I think I was sort of 10th overall in the end and it finished up the tumble which is where I finally got into the top 10 overall that was probably my first national series on the road I actually don't remember where my first mountain bike national series race was I don't I don't think I did a national one as a junior I think it probably wasn't until first year senior and I raced at Thetford in um, in an expert race. When did you join your first team? Um, what order did it go in? I can't remember which order it came in. I, I rode for the I rode for the rally mountain bike team, which was a really big one at the time. It was more on the sort of development program side of it rather than the main team, which had a guy called Barry Clark there. Elliot Baxter, sort of fairly big names at the time in the mountain bike scene. And, um, but I was quickly sort of brought under the wing of, of the, the 
the larger team because I'd done quite well in the first few races. Um, and that was brilliant because it was also the importers of rally bikes or the distributors also had Diamondbacks and Nick Craig was a part of that as well uh, under the Diamondback name. So yeah, that was a that was a really nice experience because those are the people I've been reading about in magazines and watching at races, etc. when they were on TV. So I guess that was my first proper team. And then on the road, um, beyond my first club, the first team was probably the one that I went to in France in 2001, which is a team called uh, Ubisoft, so northwestern France, basically, just to the southwest of Paris. Uh, and I went there for three months in the latter part of the season. I was um, staying with Russell Downing in an apartment the team had over there. Uh, and that was arranged by Rod Ellingworth, actually, obviously now with Team Ineos Grenadiers. Yeah, I think he'd raced for them a few years before and had a good relationship with them. And he knew that I wanted to try my hand abroad. So he helped set that up for me. Oh, wow. <laughs> it must have been really cool to ride with Nick Craig and some really big riders in that mountain bike team. It was, yeah. It was. We did a, There used to be a, a Red Bull 24-hour mountain bike event somewhere around Birmingham, and they brought me in for that. Oh. And I was expecting a big payday. I think that I think the uh, the top prize was like five grand. So once you split it between four of you and a bit for the staff, it was a grand each, which was a huge amount of money to me at the time. Still would be. And um, but yeah, we didn't win it. There was a new strategy by a team called Haley Hansen, where rather than doing a couple of hours each and swapping and having a decent break, they were just doing one lap each. I don't know whether it was that that made the difference, but either way, they beat us. And I felt. Um, I found that quite hard because I, I just sort of felt like maybe I'd let the side down, you know, that they'd won it every year and then I came into it and they didn't win it. Um, but yeah, it was nice. And Nick Craig particularly was a really, a really welcoming person. You find that with some, and I found it when I first went abroad and did pro races that there were certain riders that would be very welcoming, even to sort of unknown youngsters and others that would be less welcoming. And, I, and in hindsight, I think a lot of that comes down to, um, shyness as much as anything you know back when you're young you you think that anyone that's a bit older than you is not going to be shy um, but I think that certainly there was the case with Barry Clark that was a, a hero of mine that he seemed quite standoffish but I'd imagine he's probably just a quiet person really. What was your first international race like? Um, I honestly don't remember it it must have been when I what you're going to find out during this podcast is that I, my memory is actually not very good at all um, apart from when I was three and took the stabilizers off. Um, it must have been when I went to UBC Artois, but for the life... Oh, no, I do remember it. I did quite well. And I partly did well because the organisers mistook me for Russ Downing. So although we were fairly close together... Well, now what they did, they mistook me for Russell in an intermediate sprint. And the bonus seconds that were available there, I think, left me in sort of 12th place overall. And it was quite a big amateur race in France. So I started off pretty well there and it just went downhill from the first race. Um, I don't remember much about it, though. It must have felt different and, and probably a bit faster than what I was used to. And it, it just everything felt so alien at the time because, like I said, there was not really much internet. We were just sort of starting up around that point, but we didn't have it in the apartment. Um, and it was difficult to keep in contact with home cheaply enough. Um, so you, even though you were only in front, you just felt so much further away from home than you do now if you go abroad. Can you tell me more about your first foreign team that you were riding for that French team uh yeah Ubisoft so there's there's two teams in France one's Ubisoft and one's Ubisoft Orb I think it's called um 
and they were the one I was in, I think was in the second division of the French amateur teams. We had an apartment in the centre of Troyes, which is really quite nice, actually. It wasn't a bad apartment at all. Um, the training was all right. Wasn't particularly hilly. I remember it being very, very hot when I was there. Um, but it was it was just a simple setup. We had Bianchi bikes. There was a, a guy called Christophe Andre who then went on to run CC at Toop. He was the sort of general manager, which he, and he'd taken it over from his dad, Jack Andre. Um, and Christophe went on to run CC at Toop, which had a number of big rides. I remember he he rang me a few years ago about uh, Adam Yates that had been riding for him saying that this guy's got some serious talent can we can you do anything to help him get onto one of the big teams um, but yeah I mean it was, it was just a small amateur setup basically. In 2002 you did the under 23 road world championships that sounds like an amazing experience tell me more about that. Yeah it was I think the first time I'd no second time I'd pulled on a, a GB jersey because I did the mountain bike world champs the year before um or two years before it was it was a memorable experience because i lost four of my front teeth um so i don't know how i didn't probably get that far into the race but it was in it was on a circuit called zolder which is a motor racing circuit in belgium and a lot of the circuit was barriered for some reason i don't know why because you would only really need to do it towards the finish but either way there was a bit of a skirmish in the bunch and I was on the edge of the bunch trying to move up. And as it all moved over, I had nowhere to go. And I flipped over my handlebars and my mouth landed on the foot of one of the barriers. Oh, no. So three teeth came clean out. And then the one that was left mangled slightly still in was pulled out by the doctor in Genk, not too far away. Uh, so, yeah, then started a long process of firstly a denture and then having titanium implants put in which is what I've got to this day so yeah I'll never forget it that's for sure yeah it does sound like an eventful race <laughs> I, I've heard of Zolda because there's a cyclocross race there and I didn't realize they actually went to the mountain bike world the year before can you tell me about that about the mountain bike ones yeah uh, yeah they were in Granada up in um altitude in, in southern Spain there um yeah, I'd been. It was quite hard to get selection. But the, the selection criteria wasn't particularly clear a lot of the time. But that year it was, and was geared towards the riders that they were supporting, of which I wasn't one. Um, but because one of those riders that they were supporting got injured and couldn't do the international race, where it was a lot easier to pick up points for this um, qualification, uh, it meant that because I was doing well in the UK, I managed to get one of the qualification spots. Um, but again, didn't go particularly well. I, did, I don't think, I, looking back, I didn't do very well in world championships. It was the only mountain bike race in my entire life where I punctured. Um, and so, yeah, I probably wasn't very high up anyway. But by the time I'd fixed that and got on my way, I was somewhere towards the back. And that was basically the end of that, I think. Still a pretty cool thing to be able to say that you've been to world championships in road and mountain bike. Though. Yeah, yeah, it was looking back. You don't think about it at the time because it's just all part of your... Not that you don't think about it. Of course, it's a real privilege to be at the World Champs representing your country, but they're all just stepping stones and progression, aren't they? I think you're always looking at what's coming next and how to learn from it and move on and get better. Um, but yeah, it was, nice. it was nice to be able to do both disciplines, yeah. So I've spoken to so many riders on the GB programme and I never sort of like to ask them about what the atmosphere is like in the 
academy bubble, but it's easier to ask you now that you're retired. What was your experience like being on the national squad? Are the riders always friendly or do rivalries sometimes get a bit too much? Well, I wasn't I wasn't really ever on the academy. Um, the only time I had experiences with the national team was when I was selected for world championships. Um, and I don't remember the atmosphere ever being bad at all in any of those. And in fact, it was very good when we got to Mendricio, which was the world champs in 2009 on the road, because by that point, Rod Ellingworth had started with, um, with the team's goal of, of getting a world champion for the first time since Tom Simpson ultimately to try and get Mark Cavendish to become world champion at some point when it was a flatter course. And that build-up had started, I guess, in 2008 at some point. But by 2009, it was fully in motion and, and he was getting us to meet up whenever we were in the same sort of area, which is normally the national championships. But they also that year organised a small two or three day get together in Mendricio a month or two in advance of the race. I guess it's just part of building a team atmosphere because where you're always with your trade team or your pro team, you know, that that's that's the bonding that goes on there. That's the team that you're riding for day in, day out. Uh, and a, a bit like watching in England play football, you know, you want them to gel straight away, but they're probably not going to because most of the year they're playing against each other or maybe just with one other teammate. Um, so he did a really great job, Rod, at getting us all together and all behind the same ambition and goal. Um which which they eventually achieved. You know, as I was disappointed not to be a part of it. I was on the cusp, and I think the last um, the last place on the team came down to me and Jez Hunt, and they went with Jez, who was my teammate at the time, and based on experience, etc., as opposed to form at the time. So yeah, I missed out on the actual point at which at which Mark got the World Championship rainbow bands, but I was a part of that whole journey towards that point and yeah it was great I, there wasn't really any it was an exciting time as in British cycling you know with with Cab winning the biggest races it wasn't unheard of but certainly British cyclists being that successful on the road on the continent was yeah. was few and far between back then and it's very easy to forget 12 years on because we've got so many amazing British cyclists that win the biggest races in the world. But back then it was it was pretty new to have that level of consistency from a from a British rider. So it was an exciting period to be a part of. Um, but yeah, the, whenever I was around the national team, the atmosphere was always pretty good. Although I have heard differing opinions from those that have been within it a bit more than I have. So between 2003 and 2009, you signed for lots of different teams, including FlandersAffin.com, Giant Asia Racing Team, DFL Cycling News Lightspeed and Ampost. You raced all over the world. Can we talk about the highs and lows you had in that time period? I had lots of highs, I'd say. It was, I was basically scrounging around for many, many years trying to get into a bigger team. And really, in hindsight, if if there was somebody else doing the same thing, I think I'd probably advise them to give up just because in the end I was 28 by the time I got to a big team. And equally, I could have got to 28 and not had an opportunity and had to start life almost afresh in a different world um, 10 years after a lot of other people start their careers. In the end, it worked out for me, I guess, might have been down to luck, might have been down to perseverance, and it's allowed me to forge a career afterwards in, that I really enjoy. Um, but yeah, it was great. I was um, 
before the, the before the teams you mentioned, I was with a, an English squad called Endurosport, which is a really small pro team, you know, pro in inverted commas because you didn't really get paid anything. Um, and we were based in Italy. Former pro Harry Lodge was our sports director and manager. And that was my first dip of my toe in the wards to pro racing, which was amazing. Just to, I didn't do any good results or any good rides really, but just to be lining up with some of the people that you only ever see on TV was fantastic. The two years I had in Belgium were incredibly enjoyable. Just a really um, eclectic group of different people, but that, that all seemed to get along quite well. I stayed in an apartment there with, with a, a rider called Stephen Gallagher that went on to be my best friend. Uh, and then there was an American there with a Swanya that stayed there, Brit. And then there was an Italian, a couple of Italians actually. But yeah, they, I've got really good memories from Belgium. Uh, then I just didn't really find a contract and I went to Giant Asia. That was slightly different. I just met my wife. And so I was um, based in the UK and doing the, the long hauls over to Thailand, um, Taiwan, Japan. So I got to see a lot of Asia in that year, Indonesia. 2007, I was at DFL Cycling News. I had, a, I had a decent season that year in terms of results. I was pretty good in the classics, um, all the semi-classics that we got to do. I was good at the nationals. I was good at the tour of Qinghai Lake. Um, and yeah, but the, I guess the low would have been at the end of that year because the team the team looked like it had got a new sponsor, but in the end, it was someone that was just talking rubbish. You know, one of those people that you seem to get so often in cycling that, that, that says they've got a lot of money and they want to sponsor the team. And it was all fictional in effect. And so in January of 2008, I just had nothing. And, and at that point I was 27 years old. So I was again, looking around, just trying to, and I was very fortunate that I had a personal sponsor, a different Barry Clark that owned the hotel around here and, and sponsored Bournemouth Arrow for many, many years. And he was paying me a wage just to help me on and to keep me going and, and try to get a, a spot on a pro team. And actually the DFL um, owner, Nick Collins, who's unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, he, he paid money out of his own pocket to keep me going as well, because obviously I had a family by that point. Um, so yeah, then I but then I landed with Anne Post chain. Uh, no, Anne Post. I think that was it at the time. Didn't have the chain reaction sponsorship. So Sean Kelly's team. Uh, another really enjoyable year, and I won the World Extremadura. Uh, we also won the the Anne Post RAS with Stephen and then Dan Fleeman won the Tour of the Pyrenees. We all got on really well together as a team again. So it was just another enjoyable year. And then thankfully, at the end of that, I. Um, I finally got an opportunity at a big team. But yeah, I, there, there weren't that many lows. There were points at which you doubted whether you were ever going to get anywhere. But I had a, it was, I know I didn't go to university, but that really was, was six years of uni, really, just traveling the world, getting to know different people and different cultures. It was, it was a really enjoyable period of my life. In 2009, you signed for Savella Test Team. And I understand from my dad that that was a massive team at the time with the riders such as Torhashoff. Carlos Sastri, Simon Girard and Heinrich Hausler. Did it feel like a massive thing to you at the time? Yes, huge. Well, I didn't believe it at the start because I had so many broken promises over the years that when I got the call saying uh, we're interested in signing you for a new team that will be called the Cervelo Test Team, um, I didn't really believe it until the contract came through. And even at that point, I didn't really believe it until I arrived at the first team get-together. Um, but yeah, it did feel huge, particularly as at the first team get-together, I got there reasonably early and uh, and I was 
given my room number, my room key, went up there and went back down. And I asked the management if they knew who I was rooming with. And they said, well, there's the team list up on the wall by the lift there. So go and have a look at it because they didn't know offhand. So I went to have a look at the team list and I was rooming with Carlos Sastre that you just mentioned, who'd won the Tour de France that year. So yeah, I was like, my God, I'm, you know, it, this really is happening. And I'm about to room with the Tour de France champion. I was pinching myself. And then I realised that because I arrived there at like two o'clock, lunch had finished and I hadn't had any. And when I got into the room, they'd given us a couple of boxes of Swiss chocolates, one each on the bed. And I and I munched my way through most of my chocolates. So my second thought after thinking, my God, I'm going to be rooming with the Tour de France champion was, my God, he's going to see that I've just eaten a load of chocolate and maybe that's not very professional. And so what I did was I went up and I ate the rest of my chocolates and disposed of the rubbish in the corridor in a bin. And then I took his chocolates from his bed and put them on the table. So it looked like we just had one between us. <laughs> so early into your career with Savelle Test Team, you got to ride what is now known as Strada Bianchi, which is one of my favourite races. You had a fantastic race finishing ninth place. Talk me through what you remember about that race. It was quite new at the time, so it wasn't as prestigious then as it is now. You know, that, that race has quickly become one that we all look forward to watching every single year, and there are bigger and better riders and more of them doing it every year. Back then, it was it was being touted as like the Italian Paris Bay, and it's a lo- it's nothing like Paris Bay. You know, it's so much hillier, the terrain, although on gravel, is it's way way smoother than going over cobbles. Um, but that was in my first few months of being with with Cervelo. And we'd done really well in the first race that I did, which was Tour Cata. And I just seemed to have quite good form. So I, there certainly wasn't anybody riding for me that day. And I would imagine that the plan was for me to ride for other people. Um, and because it was so new, and I don't think hardly anybody on the team, if anybody, had actually ridden the race before, it was quite difficult to make a strategy. And you know, we didn't have street view and um, as much information as you would get now on roads that you don't know um but yeah it just kind of suited me really it was climbing but not long climbs it was on gravel I was used to mountain biking and I just had really good legs that day so I also think it was probably raced differently I think because it was seen as Paris-Roubaix type classics type race that you would have that you had far less climbers and and also because you had fewer climbers the race didn't start until a bit later because the bigger climbs come quite some way from the finish and I think now they really go hard up them and had they done that when I raced, I might not have been near the front. But as it was, um, I was near the front. And actually, I probably should have done best. And I did. I felt so good at the last gravel climb with, I don't know how many Ks that is to go, 12 maybe. Um, but just beyond that, I was in a group of, I don't know, seven or eight. And I uh, I got sort of pushed over by one of the riders. Is it a bit windy over the top? And I ended up in the grass and sides. So I didn't come off, but I, it took me a while to find a place to get back onto the road safely. And so I was quite a long way off the back and I had to make quite a big effort just to get back onto that group, which was an effort I didn't have at the end. But yeah, top 10. I think I was sandwiched between Ryder Hedgedale and Andy Schleck. So it's something that I can look back on fondly and, and joke about on GCN videos. But yeah, <laughs> proud moment for me. <laughs> a few months later, you got to ride your first Giro, which was your first Grand Tour. The team won four stages. That must have been an amazing achievement for you and the team. What do you remember about that Grand Tour? I remember being very nervous at the start 
really nervous because not only was it my first three week race and so you've got no idea what to expect but I'd also felt quite um I felt quite ill in the lead up to it to the point where I'd said to the sports director, I'm not sure I'm going to be up for this because I'd missed a lot of training um so I was a bit unsure about what my form was like going into it um and the stages were really long back then. I look back at it sometimes. You look at the, the the first stage that Carlos won it. He was six hours 40, I think, to win it. I was another 40 or 50 minutes behind that, and there was another group behind ours. Um, but, yeah, fantastic memories. I think Simon Gerrans was the first stage win. He was in a, in a breakaway group, which had Chris Froome in it, actually, that was an unknown rider at the time. Um, second stage win came from Carlos. He took another one in the mountains in the final week. And then Ignatius Konovalovas won the final time trial. He was helped slightly by the fact that it rained whilst Bradley Wiggins was racing round, but still it was a fourth win. We took it. Um, it was very hot. I have no idea which part of the country I was in. Like whenever I'm commentating on the Giro now, Somebody says, oh, this, this climb was used in 2009 and I, and I have to look it up because I've got no recollection really of whereabouts in the country I was or, or what climb I was on. Um, I remember being very concerned about getting through it from a nutritional and, and hydration perspective because of the heat and because it was long stages and because it was three weeks long. You're, you're worried about just running out of reserves. But I think I must have taken it too far because I ended up putting on four kilos in the first two weeks of the race. And... Uh, <laughs> I think it was just, it was all water retention. The doctors have been encouraging us to take electrolyte tablets to make sure that we helped with our hydration. But I don't think I needed them because, well, every every molecule that you have of electrolytes and salts, et cetera, binds to a molecule of water. So I think I just had four kilos of water that I was carrying around with me inside my body. Um, <laughs> I, I figured that out in, after two weeks that something wasn't quite right if I was that much heavier and uh, managed to lose a couple in the last week. But no, overall, yeah, massive experience doing your first Grand Tour, especially when, you were, especially when you're older, I think, just because you've built up to it for longer in it. Yeah. I think when you're really young and talented, it all comes quite naturally. Although it's a big step, you're confident. Whereas because it was so long for me before I got there, I wondered whether I was going to be completely out of my depth. and um, But yeah, to be in a team like that, which got on so well together and which came away with such a, a huge number of stage wins and a good overall result was, was fantastic. Hmm. How did you find being away from your family? Um, yeah, I didn't... I think I might have struggled slightly that first time I went to France. Like I said, it was a case of going to a phone box and using some sort of card that would give you 20p a minute calls or something. So I didn't speak to them particularly regularly. And it was my first experience of being away from home and fending for myself, really. Um, The second year, I didn't struggle so much. I was in another team in France and um, it was a really good group of guys that got on well together again. And so felt like I was kind of in a family anyway. And then that was sort of a, with my mum and sister that I used to live with. Once I once I met Lorraine and, and after we got married, um, yeah, I mean, it's hard. I think it's hard at the end of the winter when you spent quite a bit of time at home, you know, that first point where you sort of start to pack your bags again and you get a little bit in your heart that thinks, oh, I don't really want to go out the door and shut it behind me at this point. It, but once you're there and you concentrate on what you're doing, whether it's a training camp or a race, it's fine. And and with the communications that you had later on with mobile phones, et cetera, I mean, it was still, 
it still wasn't as cheap as it is now to communicate with, you know, it was traditional phone calls and text messages. I don't think there was a WhatsApp or anything at that point. Um, but at least it was easier to keep, keep in communication with everyone at home. You raced the national championships, which started and ended in Abergavenny, and you finished in second behind Christian House and ahead of riders such as Chris Froome and Mark Cavendish. Did you expect to do so well, or were you disappointed that you didn't win? I would have expected to do, not expected, I would have been confident I was going to do a good performance before the start of that day. But during the day, I felt terrible. That So there was, uh, that was the second time that I'd come second, and the first was two years before. And I'd been fourth in 2008, which was one year before. And that one I was really disappointed with because I had such good legs. I just made some wrong decisions. On the one that I came second to Christian House and I had really bad legs, but just every decision I seemed to make seemed to be the right one. So I, I wouldn't go with many moves. And then every time I did go with one, it would it would stay up the road. Um, so, yeah, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't that disappointed with second that day. I'd been disappointed with second in 2007 and I'd been, ripped, I'd been crying my eyes out in 2008 at fourth. But that day, I, that day I was lucky to come second, to be honest. It would have been nice to win it, obviously, but, um, but yeah, I just didn't feel very good the whole day. In 2010, you rode the Giro again and you rode the Tour de France as well as a number of week-long stage races and one-day classics. How did you train and recover with so much racing? And did you target certain races or stages? Um, well, I would have targeted the classics at the start of the year. We had a really good classics group and we'd done very well the year before. So we were very motivated. And that, and those races were, were what I loved the most as well. Um, and then beyond that, um, the Giro didn't go to plan the same as it had done the year before. I guess we couldn't have expected it to be as good as the year before, but but Carlos by that point, I think, was riding something like a sixth Grand Tour in a row, and I think it, it started to take its effect on him. Uh, we had Xavier Tondo there, who, again, unfortunately passed away a few years later. Um, so, yeah, I, well, I, I mean, I was never meant to do the Tour de France either, so I did the Giro, and towards the end of the Giro, the sports director was saying we need an extra rider for the Dauphiné with one person short. And they asked me if I would fancy doing it. And I'd always heard about these riders that said, sometimes you come out of a three-week tour and after a few days rest, you're absolutely flying. So I thought, well, I'll give it a go because I know I'm going to get a long break after that from racing anyway. So I went to the Dauphiné and I wasn't flying. I was just very, very tired. I remember asking my sports director with about three days to go, I was like, can I, can I just pull out of this? I'm just on my knees. And he said no. And so I got through to the last day. I didn't finish the last day. But anyway, after that, I had a bit of a break. And um, and then just before the national championships, uh, they they called to ask if I could do the tour. And ironically, I just said no to the Tour of Austria, which is at the same time as the Tour de France, because I said I was too tired. And I was. Uh, it was only that my roommate at the national champs, Jez Hunt, he passed up on an opportunity to do the tour in his first in his second year as a pro and then never got the opportunity to do it again for another decade or so. And he said, just however tired you are, just say you're going to do it because you might never get the opportunity again. Um, but yeah, like I said, I did the Giro six days off Dauphiné a couple of weeks later, the national champs. And then a week after that, um, the tour de France. And actually, I didn't, I didn't feel too bad. I had some advice from Adrian Timmis who'd done the tour as a very young rider um, and, and it had killed him. And he just, 
he said just rest the whole way into the tour because you don't need to do more you've done so much racing so that's what I did and I actually I felt all right the first few road stages um, and then I crashed but in, in answer to your question now I wasn't wasn't really ever my job to target specific stages but rather just do a job for either Carlos leading into the mountains or for Tour leading into the sprints and the intermediate sprints so I just had to be as good as I could be on each day but yeah by the end of that I was by the end of the tour I was really on my knees. Do you think that the tour was all that you had expected it to be? Yes, I'd say so. It feels slightly smaller when you're on the inside of it than it does when you're watching it or going there as a fan somehow. I think you're a bit more protected from everything just because you go to the start line from the hotel in a bus and then, and especially now that's sort of cordoned off from COVID reasons. But even the last few years before that, they, they'd restricted the number of people from the public that could go into where the buses park up. Um but even back in my day when I think all the fans could still be around the team buses, you'd only get out when you needed to, to go to the sign-on. And then not long after that, you'd start the stage, finish the stage, see us one year, get back onto the bus again, onto the next hotel. So you, I don't know, like I said, you're a bit protected really from how big it was in some ways. Um, but at the same time, I would still say it lived up to all my expectations. I always remember the first road stage on the on the first Sunday was in Belgium where they're obviously fanatical about cycling and I've never I've never been in a race with so many fans on the side on the side of the road everywhere just on the main roads like and it was so noisy that it was the first time that I realized how much you use your hearing as a as a sense when you're racing you know I, there were crashes in front of me and normally the first thing would be you'd hear something and then you'd see what had happened but you couldn't hear anything because of the crowds and so you just see people coming off in front of you and have to avoid them um but yeah it was great i mean it, it, it there were some very hard moments where i crashed on i crashed behind the schlecks on stage four i think it was and i had a, quite a bad injury around my groin area and uh so i was got on quite a lot of painkillers and there were some days where i really struggled to get through and inside the time limit but um but I was never going to stop. But you know, just the thought of getting to the Champs Elysees and saying that you could, um, so that you could say that you'd finished the Tour de France, um, mm. kept me going. So yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, and it, and it lived up to all my expectations. I'd say. In 2011, you rode the Tour of Britain for the fifth time, achieving your best result of tenth in the GC. Can you talk me through some of your memories over your years of riding the Tour of Britain? And how did you feel that it changed over the years? Um, well, I, I, I probably I must have done it five years in a row. Then I think because my first one was two thousand and seven. I'd really targeted it because it was when I was in a, a second division team. So I had some big races, but I thought if I can perform at the Tour of Britain in a stage race on home roads amongst World Tour teams, then it might help my um, cause of getting a contract. Um, all went fine at the start and then there was a day when we missed a break and then we were into Yorkshire and they didn't have permission to have the number of rides on the roads that we had so they stopped it and then they started the race off with the break with an equal time gap to what they'd had when we got uh, neutralised and we just never caught it back and actually I didn't feel particularly good that day anyway um, so yeah I didn't I didn't get a result I was hoping for actually at the end of it 2008, I don't remember. 2009 and 10 with Cervelo, that it was less important to me then because I was with a bigger team and I'd done so much racing both years before I got there. Um, and because it came in September and, and and I had a contract for the next year, it wasn't it wasn't as high up on my priorities list as it as it had been in the previous years. 
2011, I was really up for it because that year Jude had been born. And so I didn't have loads of racing in the middle. And then towards the end, I did the um, US Pro Challenge in Colorado. I'd stayed there for a couple of weeks at altitude before. So I was really going very well, actually, at the 2011 Tour of Britain. And um, but I just had a very, very bad time trial on the last day. I, I, uh, I think I was sat second or third overall going into it and ended up in 10th. So, yeah, that didn't go to plan. <laughs> Your final race was your sixth Tour of Britain in 2012. How did it feel to finish your career on home roads? And was that always your plan? Uh, No. So basically at the end of 2011, so not long after that Tour of Britain we were just talking about, I didn't get my contract renewed and and had no no plan in place afterwards. My career had always gone steadily upwards and I'd only been at the top for three years by that point in terms of the team that I was in. Um, So I didn't really know what I was going to do in 2012. And I started putting plans in place outside of racing um, with some commentary for for RCS Sport around the Giro d'Italia and the other big Italian races and then some commentary of Eurosport. And then whilst I was organising all of that, my friend Ian Whittingham, that's one of the co-owners of Sigma Sports, the bike shop, said, well, why don't you come and race for us whilst you're doing your commentary and stuff because we've got some international races, we'll do the Tour of Britain. So I said yes. And um, I, I didn't enjoy the year very much from a racing perspective because... I had quite a few weeks off where I didn't think I was going to be racing again. So it was hard to get going. And I just found that I wasn't motivated to train as much because I was doing the other commentary because the races weren't as big. You know, you do, you get other people that, that have to take a step down and they're so determined to get back up for some, for some reason I wasn't. And I really enjoyed doing the commentating side of things. And um, I was actually quite nervous going to the tour of Britain because my fitness was, at a point where I thought I'd just struggle to get around as opposed to being competitive. I didn't struggle to get around in the end, but I also wasn't competitive. But even at the end of that, I don't, I hadn't, I wasn't clear in my mind what I was doing after the Tour of Britain. So I didn't, I didn't know that that was my last race. I thought there was an opportunity potentially to go back up to a top team. Cannondale, I think it was at the time. Um, So yeah, if I could change something, it would be just knowing that that was your last race so that you could, so that you rode it knowing that and um, could appreciate it, I guess. Mm. And after so much riding and racing, how did you adjust to life off of the bike? Well, I was very fortunate having that transitional year, really. I think it, I look at a lot of other people that retire from full-time competitive cycling as a pro and see them struggle because it is, even if you remain within the sport, it's just such a different thing. You spent so many years and the large proportion of your life working towards one thing, you know, it inside out, you know what you're doing, you enjoy it for the most part. Um, And it's quite difficult when you just suddenly stop and then you're asked to do something completely new of your life, even if it's still within the same sport, you know, even, even going on to be a sports director, it's such a different role and you don't know it and you have to learn it. And, um, and I think it's a hard period for your family to tra- transition through as well, because they've only known you as this, as this athlete and competitive cyclist. And then all of a sudden you're, you're somebody else and you're doing different things and different hours. And, um, but I had that one year where I was still racing a little bit with Sigma Sports, but also delving into the commentary and presenting side of things. So I think that really helped me mentally because I could I could get my head around what was 
what potential I had to do in other things afterwards and what I did enjoy and what I didn't enjoy and what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. Um, but so, yeah, it was a lot, I'd say it was a lot easier for me to come out the other side than it can be for people that just stop dead, maybe not on their own terms and have to start afresh with something else. The first time that I became aware of you was watching clips on YouTube from GCN. How did you get involved with GCN? In that year of 2012, so with Sigma Sports, one of the sponsors, one of the co-sponsors was IG Markets, and they used to also sponsor Team Sky, and they were on the back of their shorts. And they wanted to activate their their sponsorship within the sports to to benefit them more, more basically. So they had the idea that they would do uh, Giro d'Italia stage previews for, for seven of the key stages, Tour de France stage previews for a similar number, and then Tour of Britain stage previews, which they then put onto, onto YouTube. So they asked me to present it, and then the media agency that they asked to produce it is um, it's called Shift Active Media, which is basically the parent company of where I work for now. Um, so that was when I met Simon Ware, who's been my boss for the last almost nine years. Um, and he, in that year, was talking um, with the chairman, Andrew, Andrew Croker, with the head of Google Sport and they'd found out that YouTube were going to fund a load of orig- original content channels as they called them at the time. So back in back in 2012, YouTube was huge and it had a huge number of uploads every single second of every single day, but there wasn't really any guarantee of quality. So you might search for something on YouTube and it could be a random five second video or it might be a decent 10 minute long video with a lot of information in it. And so YouTube wanted to create channels where people that had a hobby or an interest would be able to go to those channels knowing that they would get consistently good and regular content. And so they pitched for the cycling channel and got that, which is when when GCN and the Global Cycling Network was born. And because I'd been working on them doing those stage previews, they asked me if I'd, if I'd go along as the first presenter. Oh, wow. So over the last few years, I've got to know you better as a commentator. Is that something that sort of came naturally to you um no well commentary maybe yes you can always learn more I'm always still learning more and I could get a lot better at commentary I know that um presenting less so commentary I found easy to start with because when you're the co-commentator you just say what you see really um and add color to it and explain to people what's going on and why it's going on um, and you don't have to do as much talking, you don't have to host it as such, not doing the introduction or the outro at the end. So you're literally, you're only talking about something that you know a lot about already. Presenting slightly different because you do in effect have to host it and you have to remember specific lines and deliver them to a camera, which is very alien when you first do it. Um, so yeah, I, I slipped into commentary quite quite well i'd say as a as a co-commentator and i I just really enjoyed it because i love watching bike racing so if you can get paid to talk about it at the same time then happy days (laughs) sometimes you have to talk for hours do you find it hard to keep it interesting and when not much is sort of happening in the race yes i do i'm not really a natural speaker in that i don't i'm quite quiet at home i don't have a lot to say for myself to be honest on, from that point of view, presenting I find easier because you'll write bullet points or you write a script and you've got a clear narrative of what you want to say and you want to try and keep it concise anyway because people switch off if you waffle on too much. Um, 
again, as a co-commentator, it's quite easy because you're just responding to somebody else or saying what you're seeing on the screen in front of you. But yes, as a main commentator, some of those stages where nothing's happening for hours on end can be a real challenge. But I think like everything in life, it's just about preparing. You'll, you'll know that there are days that are going to end in a sprint, which probably means that a two or three man break is going to go up the road and there's going to be nothing happening for a few hours. So at that point, you need to put more time in than you do for the exciting stages because you want to have certain points to talk about. But it's a real it's a real skill and not one that I'm particularly good at, which is why I leave the main commentary most of the time to other people. Um, and because the other problem is that if you write all these points down and you've got this period in the middle of the day when nothing's happening, that you can sometimes be so focused on other things that you're talking about that when something funny does happen, you, you you forget to talk about what's happening, which frustrates the people that are watching. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky job, the main commentator side of things, and has become more so because it's more coverage than ever. You know, it's not not that long ago that you that you didn't have all of the Tour de France every stage from start to finish. You'd only have the last couple of hours, and filling two hours is pretty easy with an intro, and then you're in the thick of the action in terms of where the race is heating up, etc. But yeah, filling five hours per day is a, is a lot harder. Mm. How do you feel that the coverage has changed in the last few years since GCN teamed up with Eurosport? I've noticed that there's a lot more coverage, particularly of women's racing and of the cyclocross. Well, I guess he pointed out two of the major changes. And then there was the one I talked about before where... Um, where the host broadcasters are putting a lot more on a lot more hours of each stage on um but yeah we made a the cyclocross thing i think was more because it was cheaper for us to do you know it was a sport that didn't command the same rights fees as big road races and so we could you know we could we could buy some of those and it didn't cost us too much um and actually there's quite a big cyclocross audience out there that they just didn't have access to it really um particularly much the on the other side of the coin the 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 extra women's races has just been much more of a concerted effort really on our part to make sure that we that we showcase the women's races as much as we possibly can and to this day we're still sort of trying to make sure we get as much as we can each year because in the same way as people were yearning for cyclocross coverage and they learn more about it and the more people learn about it the more interested they are in it and the more friends they'll tell about it and it's the same with the women's racing you know part of the reason that people might say they're not interested in it is because they don't know the characters you know it's the same a lot of people that are into professional continental road racing wouldn't want to watch a premier calendar in the uk because they don't know who's racing they don't know that this person's good at sprinting or this person's someone that's a climber so he needs to go on the climb and it's the same with the women's racing if you don't know the characters and you don't know that Van Vleuten, you know, is not going to beat Van der Breggen in a sprint probably towards the line or Vollering. She needs to go beforehand or that Voss is the cannibal and she can pretty much do anything or that Lorena Vives is the big sprinter and, you know, everyone's riding for her for Team DSM, etc. If you don't know all of that, you're not going to be interested because it's just like watching a load of colourful blobs going around and you don't recognise anybody or have any interest in what somebody's going to achieve or have your favourites. So I think, you know, the biggest thing for women's cycling was just getting it out there in the first place so that people could start to learn more about it and learn more about the characters and have favourites within it that they were supporting. So I think we're, we're sort of, we've made a decent first step with that. We've got lots and lots of stuff that we can still do. But the other big point for me with women's racing is trying to make sure we talk about it at the same time as men's, you know, in terms of weekly shows 
in terms of sort of pre and post race shows when there's a women's race on at the same time just trying to integrate it because i feel like you know the men's racing still has a broader audience in general um and if you can start getting people used to listening to about both and watching both at the same time then it's going to increase the women's audience as well which already has its own you know fans that only watch the women's yeah. side of things so i think it will accelerate pretty quickly from this point onwards as i said we've made a pretty good start with it as have other broadcasters and media outlets and magazines and websites um and it's been a long time coming really it should have happened years ago but i think the, the point at which we get to this time next year where there's a women's tour de france that yeah. will accelerate it exponentially more um especially with where it lies you know one week after the men's is at a point where people are at a loss because they've spent three weeks watching a bike race and then they don't know what to do with themselves for a week and now they've got you know the women's equivalent coming straight afterwards so i think that would be fantastic for it but we we will certainly be um pushing as hard as we can to to get the full women's season on on gsm plus each year so that you can follow the whole narrative from start to finish yeah, I think it's really great that you can see more of the women's races. And you mentioned favourites. When you're commentating, do you ever have a favourite to win the race, but you have to pretend that you don't mind who wins? I think you're not supposed to. Traditionally, as a as a commentator, have favourites. You're supposed to be neutral. I've spent quite a long time thinking about whether that's right or not, because a lot of things that are traditional in broadcasting, I don't think are necessarily right or the right way of doing things. And, and, and things need to change as time moves on anyway. And so I, I don't know. Everyone's got their favourites. As long as you don't go overboard and only focus on one rider, I don't think it's a problem to say that I find Matthew Vanderpool really exciting to watch racing and I enjoy watching him win and I'm sort of egging him on slightly. Same with Alaphilippe. You know, some riders are very exciting to watch, aren't they? Mm. Um, but I just, yeah, you can't take it too far. You, you can't be a Brit that's obsessed with Geraint Thomas and commentate and spend your whole time talking about him and, <laughs> and beating him up. And that's something that I have to say to our commentators a bit is because a lot of, previously they were normally on British Eurosport, so they'd only be broadcasting to a British audience in general. Whereas now with GSM Plus, there's a lot of races where we've got them pretty much everywhere around the world. And so there's there's fans tuning in from you know Africa or Australia or America or the European countries or Eastern Europe or wherever it might be, South America. And so they want to hear something about the rides that they're interested in as well. So you, you do need to be international. But I but in answer to your question, I don't think it's in my eyes a big problem to be egging somebody on a little bit in commentary and saying that you're excited to see them up the road. Um but maybe I'm wrong. Somebody will tell me I'm sure. I love watching cyclocross and we got the GCN race pass last autumn so that we could watch it and it was great to see that there were so many races that we could watch that we weren't able to watch before. Well, it's very nice to hear. I mean, that's the whole the whole aim of it really is to make cycling more. That's been the whole aim of GCN, I think, from the very start. We didn't have any racing coverage for six or seven years six years I think it was um but the whole aim of it was to make cycling more accessible to make it fun you know at the start of GCN it was it was still right not in the middle of the doping era but the doping era had been a big part of pro racing for for quite a few years leading up to the start of GCN but we decided that we were going to just make it fun and make it about what everyone enjoys about cycling in the first place and like I said to make it more accessible you know everything from tutorials on how to ride, 
with one hand or no hands or use clipless pedals or train or maintain your bike or fix a puncture or change just basic stuff you know when i first started oh people don't need to know how to do that everyone knows how to change an inner tube i think we did a we did a, we did a video about how to change a rear wheel um which i thought well, that's a stupid idea but it did an enormous number of views so you learn actually everyone has to learn when they get into it how to do different things um, and it's quite a complicated sport to learn and the racing is also quite complicated to learn because there's so many nuances to it and you when you first watch it have no idea what's going on you need people to explain it to you so i think we've taken the original ethos from the gcn youtube videos from the very beginning and tried to take it over to the racing side of things as well where you want to be all inclusive and 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 speak with people as much as to them and that's something we've got to work on with the racing side of things and the app is that we'd like to get more user interaction and user comments so we don't have a comment section at the moment but we'll we'll be working on that at some point we've got polls and quizzes that people can get involved in and vote on and comment underneath um but yeah we we just like to have we just like people to feel more involved with what they're watching as opposed to just watching it if that makes sense. Yeah. So last year, races were really limited and now they're back on. Things are done quite differently. How did COVID affect you in 2020 and affect how GCN works now? Uh, in, in terms of the traditional GCN, it affected things briefly in that we all had to film ourselves remotely. And I'd never used a camera in my life. I'd been fortunate other people had always done that and done the editing. I still didn't have to do any editing, but um, we were filming the GCN show remotely. So Si was at home and I was at home and we'd have to sort of sync up and set the cameras up ourselves and send the footage up to the people that were editing from home. So that was a bit of a challenge. And there's quite a few GCN shows where I'm completely out of focus because I never really got a grip on what I was actually doing. Um, in terms of GCN Plus... It delayed the start of it because we'd been all geared up to to launch around March or April, I think, last year. And then obviously the racing just stopped, so there was no point. So we didn't do it until August. Um, so it affected things briefly, but then in the UK here, the laws in terms of what broadcasters were able to do with travel within the UK opened up. So it, it was quite quick where if you were a broadcaster, you were allowed to go to a premises to present or commentate um so from that point of view my life didn't change particularly much because i was still going up to bath i went to wimbledon for three weeks in may last year to a thing that we were looking at historical giro stages i'd say the positive for us was that um eurosport had been quite reluctant to use remote commentary whereas we'd already been using it with jeremy powers on the side across he was in the us jeremy was in the uk and it worked fine, but it kind of forced them to it forced them to use remote commentary and to get the technology up and running for all of that and to iron it out. And we're still ironing it out to this day, actually. Um, there's still a few problems every so often with technical glitches and stuff with people commentating remotely. But that um, that is something I think will be here to stay. You know, we'll, we'll get people back into the commentary booths, and there already are. But the ability to have Jose Bain commentating from the Netherlands on you know, some of the Belgian and French races, etc., and gives you access to more people to be able to do stuff. And, and we need that because we've got more racing than ever. The Tour de France is coming up. Who would you like to see perform well? And who do you think may be a breakout star? I'd like to see Pogaccia perform well again and, and win it again. Yeah. 
going back to what we said before, you're not supposed to have your favourites, but I just really enjoy watching him mm. race a bike because he really races. He attacks. You don't really know what to expect from him, apart from an amazing performance. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to see him take back-to-back victories. In terms of a breakout star, I've got a hunch that Ben O'Connor is going to do something special. So he's an Australian that's now of age 2R. He's been around a little while, but he's still quite young. Um, he was really solid at the Dauphiné a couple of weeks ago. Won a stage or two of the Giro last year. Um, and I think, yeah, he could surprise a few people. What about the Olympics? Which riders would you like to see on the podium in both road and mountain bike? I'd like to see... I'd like to see Vanderpool win it on the mountain bike. I don't. The only preference I have between him and Pidcock in terms of who I'd like to see win it is just because Vanderpool's invested so much in it for so many years, to the cost of what he's been doing on the road. Because I, I always wanted him to, I wanted to see him just go straight onto road and, and and go to the classics. But he was really adamant about chasing the Olympic gold dream and mountain biking. So from that point of view, given he's put so much into it and so much time into it, I'd like to see him take the gold. Um, but then, yeah, it'd be nice to see Tom Peacock bring it home for Britain as well, wouldn't it? Or even Nino Scherzer, you know, given what he's done in the uh, in the racing over the years. It'd be cool to see him at the top one last time. Um, on the road, I would love to see... I think I'd like to see Van der Breggen win it. Because, only because she's retiring at the end of this year. Her or Diagon, because I think Lizzie's going to retire at the end of the year as well. and She's not won the Olympic gold yet. She was silver, wasn't she, to Mariana Voss in 2012. Mm. Um, I think either of those two, you know, just to see someone go out on a high, end their career with a big win, um, yeah. I think it would be fantastic. I'm not sure the course really suits them. It's not as hilly as the men's. And then on the men's road race, I um, don't think I have a preference, to be honest, on that one. What's your favourite race to watch? Uh, Tour of Flans and Paris-Roubaix. They're very good races. I just races. love the cobbles. I really... I mean, I, I can't wait for the tour to start on Saturday and I think those first two stages are going to be unbelievable. So you could probably get a different answer for me at different times of the year. I think if you, if I had to put, say, one at the moment, it would probably be Paris Bay. And I think that's because I just haven't seen one for two years. None of us have. Mm. So I think the anticipation of, of it happening in October, one week after the World Champs in Flanders, is amazing. Um, two and a half years after it last took place. And I'm very excited to see the women race Paris Bay as well. Yes, oh, that's going to be such. A, well, that's I think one of the benefits of having it postponed this year is that it was supposed to happen on the same day as the men's, which posed a problem to to ASO in terms of getting coverage of both races with the resources they have with helicopters and motorbikes. But with the revised one in October, the women's race is on the Saturday, so it won't have any other distractions. You'll just be able to sit down and watch that one and enjoy it. Um, and the men's race is on the Sunday. So, yeah, that's going to be fantastic. What's your favourite race to commentate on? Uh, those ones as well, I'd say. Yeah. Um, uh, the, uh, yeah, the couple classics, just because they're easy to commentate on because things happen so early. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a, it's not like a... There's other races like San Remo where nothing really happens until the Chapresa and probably not until the Poggio, which is still which is only 15Ks to go. With Flanders and Roubaix, it, it all kicks off really early and yeah. it's exciting to watch for a long time. And you get your first sense of that when in February each year with Omelie Het News, Baden Kuhner, Brussels Kuhner, where they don't have live coverage from the start and so it switches on with a couple of hours to go and it's already in pieces all over the road. I love that. <laughs> What's your favourite race that you've ever done? 
Flanders. <laughs> <laughs> I like, you know, I love doing the Tour de France, but I think I really, I always wanted to do the Tour of Flanders, and so to to be on the start line and in the in the start town of Bruges for that, I was pinching myself. Where's your favourite place to ride for fun? Uh, I always used to say Tuscany and a place near called Foix down in the, in the Pyrenees in southern France. That's where I used to like to go training in the summer. Uh, but Tuscany is beautiful because it's just got such varied landscape and brilliant roads, nice weather, great cafes, restaurants. Um, yeah, so one of those two, I'd say. You can only ride one type of bike for the rest of your life. Which bike would you choose and why? Gravel, probably, just because you can do so much of it. Mm. Um, you can ride on the road, not much slower. You can even take some. You can even take single tracking with gravel bikes. It's quite fun. It's almost more fun on a gravel bike than on a, on a mountain bike with full suspension because you just have to use your skills a little bit more. I'd say. Um, so yeah, I'd go with a gravel bike. Who's your favourite current rider? I. I'd say Pogacar and Vanderpool, if I could have two. Can I have two? Yeah, you can. <laughs> Pogacar for the reasons I said before. And Vanderpool for exactly the same reasons. You, mm. you just don't know when that guy is going to go. And and because he's so talented and so strong, he rips the rule book up because when he does go, the others can't sit back and say, well, he's going to fade, we'll catch him. They also have to react. Um, yeah. Because cycling had got to this point which I thought was of no return where things were so calculated and there was such a specific way of doing things to ensure that you won. that I didn't think we'd ever go away from that again. So to see those sorts of young talents coming in and just throwing caution to the wind and attacking where you least expect it and carry it off, I think is just hugely exciting. Who's your favourite rider of all time? I'd say Mariana Voss. I, uh, I, just the longevity of her career and the amount that she's won and I did she had she went through a few problems I guess four or five years ago where she had sort of injuries and I think it's like lack of motivation I never thought she'd a bit like Cav now I guess I just never thought that she'd be able to get back to where she was partly because I didn't think she'd be motivated enough and partly because I thought the level had probably got gone up um but yeah, to see to see what she did over the years and when, whenever you look back through the stats of what she's done it's like my god she's just I don't know how many stages of the Giro Rosa it is, close to 30, I think, maybe more. Wow. Um, and, she, and just the desire she's still got. And I, and I was speaking to her recently about um, something, and I said, look, it'd be great if we could do a, a Legends film on you for GCN Plus at some point. So we've done Kittel and Taffy and Cancellara, and we'd love to do one with you. And she said, well, I've got no plans of retiring soon, so it might have to wait a few years. So, yeah, just to, just to be that good from a junior and still be that good now and still want to carry on. I just think it's phenomenal. What's your advice for young riders? Um, oh, they're all cliches, aren't they? Enjoy it. Um, I don't know if you can do that anymore. The more I look at it and the more I look at the ages of the riders that are performing at the top for, in, in both men's and women's racing, it's not that you can't enjoy it, but I think you're having to take it seriously at an earlier age because... Um, if you don't, then you might get left behind a little bit. Um, that said, you still have riders like Mike Woods, you know, coming over from road uh, from running. Um, but then you had the engine from the running, etc. And there are other, you know, pretty much Roglic is a prime example. He didn't get into cycling and racing until he was 22, and now he's the best in the world at what he does. 
So yeah, I think my advice would just be to enjoy it, but also just to learn whenever you can. That was always my ethos. Like whenever I could learn from a website or a book or a forum or a magazine or a coach or another rider, I always pick their brains and, and try to get as much info as possible on how I could get better. You've got five minutes before the show goes live. What's on your playlist to get you motivated? Oh, this is the one I didn't think about. Uh, I'm quite, you're going to laugh at this, I quite like some modern grime. <laughs> my my old, this is, this is Jude, actually this is a podcast, isn't it? So Jude, my younger son, is now next to me. And um, my older son is into a lot of that type of music and I've got quite into it as well. But I've got quite an eclectic uh, taste in music. I like all sorts. So it'd probably be a different, different tracks on different days. But something like Funky Friday by Dave to get me going would be, uh, would be right up there. Thank you for joining me today, Dan. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me, Georgia. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can get in touch via my Instagram at cycling.talk.podcast. I'm now going to take a mid-season break and I'll be back in a few weeks' time with more amazing guests. All of my podcast episodes so far are available on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, my Buzzsprout website and all the usual podcast places. See you on the bike.